excellence. Y'all are lovely. Luke chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. Verse, picking up in verse 26, it's a, quite a lengthy reading to get the full context of where we want to go. And we will read all the way through verse 56 as we dive in this morning to a Christmas series. Got our hearts and minds in this direction for the next couple weeks. Luke chapter 1, picking up in verse 26, reading through verse 56. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greetings this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your room and bear a son who shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. I sound loud. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt or leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then Mary said this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servants. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. This ends the reading of God's Word. Well, we dive into our Christmas series, and if you're like me, you have um, your Christmas traditions and your Christmas favorites, and really beginning from right around, you know, 6 o'clock Thanksgiving evening, 
you have your choice of various forms of entertainment that we all love to partake of. For instance, like we all have our favorite Christmas TV shows, whether it be Frosty or The Reindeer, Rudolph the Reindeer, or Charlie Brown's Christmas, or The Grinch. Which one's your favorite? has to be The Grinch, right? <laughs> or and then there's Christmas movies. There's It's a Wonderful Life, if you're a romantic and a traditionalist. If you're a young kid, then you love Elf and all of its stupidity. <laughs> but if you're really of one of high IQ, you know that the Christmas story is the place to go for the best Christmas movies. And if you don't like it, well, go stick your tongue on a frozen pole. <laughs> what if I asked about your favorite Christmas carol? We all, man, some people get really defensive about this. Is it O Come, O Come, Emmanuel? And it's brooding, and it's darkness, and it's mystery. Is it Hark the Herald Angels Sing with its joy? Is it joy to the world? Is it O Come, All Ye Faithful? As it communicates and articulates what is the Nicene Creed in that theology of that song. Well, I commend to you this morning that we are coming to the first Christmas carol. And what we will look at for the next four weeks is the various Christmas carols that Luke gives us in the first two chapters of his gospel. There are four songs of Christmas that are given by four disciples, or we could call them pre-disciples of Jesus. They are the disciples before the disciples, before the apostles were raised up. We find that Luke, all through Luke chapter 1 and chapter 2, is name-dropping left and right. There's Zechariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist, and there's the shepherds and there's the angels... And then there's, of course, Mary. And there's four songs that we see that are written, or actually, they're poems, but in church history, the the church traditionally, over its thousands of years, has turned them into songs. Canticles are what they're called, and they have historically been given Latin names. For instance, next week we'll look at Zechariah's song. It's called the Benedictus. And then the Christmas Eve we'll look at the angel song, which is called the Gloria. In the final week on uh, New Year's Day, we'll look at Simeon's song, which is Nunc Dimenitus. But today we come to the first Christmas carol, the first song. It's Mary's song. And it is famously known as the Magnificat. The Magnificat, spoken by Mary 30 weeks before Jesus was born. It is one of the most famous songs in Christian history and in the history of Christendom. It has been chanted in the great cathedrals of our world. It has been sung in the country, little country churches that look kind of like ours probably. It has been whispered in dark monasteries. Bach played it in the great music halls, highlighting it with the kettle drum and the trumpets. It has been sung over and over and over again. And the song is getting its title from the very first line. My soul magnifies the Lord. Magnificat gets its name from that word magnify. And that's where we begin this morning as a way of introduction. What does it mean to magnify something? What does a magnifying glass do? Well, it makes whatever thing you're looking at come before your eyes in a very large way. You begin to see it very large, and it takes over your vision. And all that you see is the greatness of this item before you. And so what Mary is saying is she is saying, through my life, And through my song, and through my worship, and from the depths of my soul, I am making God great. 
Not that he is, she makes him great, but she is making him appear great. She, she is making us see him as magnificent as he is. And not only that, does she, not only does she magnify the Lord, but we also see a theme that runs throughout Christmas. She rejoices. She says, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. The theme, we would think if we were to say there's a theme of Christmas, particularly in the way we celebrate it today, we would say it's joy. Everywhere in the various um, nativity accounts and the various accounts around Jesus' birth, whether it be John the Baptist or Jesus' birth, we see joy. We see that John the Baptist, he leaps in his mother's womb for joy. Zechariah will sing with joy. Elizabeth has joy. We see that her neighbors will leap for joy because she who was once a barren now has a child. We see that the angels sing with glad tidings of great joy and the shepherds leap for joy as they left and went to see, came from seeing the baby Jesus. So we have in the themes here in this in the Magnificat, two great themes. One is the greatness of God being exposed, being made visible, seen through Mary and her song. And we also see God's or her joy and God's salvation. Here's the question for us. How do we get that kind of joy? And how do we sing like Mary? You know, so Mary and then Elizabeth, there is, this is not Presbyterian sort of worship. It's more like the worship that you all display today. And the worship that is displayed in so many great churches around our country and around the world, it is passionate worship. It is joyous worship. What caused Mary to burst forth and say, my soul magnifies the Lord? What would cause that kind of, that kind of passion in us to sing in this way? The reality for many of us is we are, well, we're Grinches. We are fuddy-duddies when it comes to Christian. We're, we're humbugs. We sing, fa la 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 get out of the way. I've got to, if you're like me, Christmas is so annoying. I have to spend an entire month thinking about how to get people gifts. My family, I like the way my family did it right. Here's what you do in my family, because my dad's very pragmatic, is everybody writes down a list of the five things they want, and you will better rue the day if those five things are not what's under the tree. On Christmas Day. You know what you're getting from Thanksgiving Day when you put it on that list. There's no question. But for many of us, this Christmas season, it's a, it's a pain, isn't it? You're busier. You've got to go to parties in which you've got to have awkward conversations. You've got to see family members that you really would rather not see. You've got to dress up and come to way too many events where there's, you know, you just don't want to do it. We're, we're humbug. And it's not just that it's the busyness and the, hum, you know, maybe you're just curmudgeoning, but it's actually the fact that we are a joyless people so often. We're thinking about ourselves. We have a joy in various trivial things. And so here's the question. How do we get the kind of joy that Mary had, the kind of joy that Mary had that could overcome our circumstances, the kind of joy that Mary could have, even if you were a people, we don't have this experience, but if we were a people like she was, which is under bondage, and under the weight of a foreign government, could we have joy then? How do we get God-magnifying joy? I'm going to answer that question by looking at all three sections of what we read this morning. We're going to look at the broader context, where the angel comes and speaks to her and her response there. Then we're going to look at the immediate context in her conversation with Elizabeth. And then finally, we'll get to the song itself this morning. And here's the first thing where we'll start is the broader context and what it shows us about as we seek to have God-magnifying joy. God-magnifying joy, the broader context tells us, comes out of faithful obedience. Out of faithful obedience. Mary shows us that a disciple, 
If you want to be a joy seeker, if you want to be a God worshiper who believes in Christ, then you obey Christ even when you do not have all the answers. Even when the circumstances that God has put in your life are rather confusing. The angel, let's just think back and run through the scene again. An angel comes to Mary and says to her, without a man, you're going to get pregnant. And that pregnancy is going to come by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this guy, this person you're going to give birth to is the Son of the Most High. And he's going to be the Savior of the people. He's going to be the Messiah. And his name is going to be Jesus. And you'll be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And she rightfully and understandably asks, how in the world will this be? You understand the implications of this, this message to Mary. This is the end of her life as she knows it. This is not merely just a weird biblical oddity. Like, oh, yeah, that's a strange story because an angel shows up to her. Or because she's pregnant without a man. It's more than that for Mary. This is going to ruin her life. This is in a day and age where if a woman gets, gets pregnant out of wedlock, she's either stoned or she's ostracized, and you can, you can kiss Joseph goodbye. He's out of the picture, and he's gone. The man that she's betrothed to. This is going to mess with her. She's going to be a social pariah because of this pregnancy. She's going to lose, it's going to ruin her socially and relationally. And yet, how do we see that she responds? What does she say? With faithful obedience. First, she gives the, mo- the most, I think, what is the, the greatest response of faith, perhaps, in all of Scripture. The angel comes and says to her, Listen, this unbelievable thing is going to happen to you, and it's going to ruin your life. And her response is this. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. This is submissive obedience. Now, do you think she, she grasped the incarnation? Do you think she grasped, oh, yeah, God's going to be in my womb. Do you think she had this well-formed theological understanding as to the fact that what's going on here? I think it actually went right past her. I think she is a woman who is confused and dazed and doesn't understand and is full of fear. And yet her response, because it's a word from God, she says, I will submit to it. And I will obey even before I understand why you're calling me to do this. I don't get it, but I'm going to obey. Out of real faith comes an obedience even in the midst of our questions. God doesn't chastise her for her questions. But do notice that even in her questions, she obeys. This is kind of what we tell our kids to do. We have, we have a seven and a five-year-old and a two-year-old, so the, the issue of like arguing and talking back when we tell them to do something is kind of an issue in our worlds. We tell them to go do something. I don't want to do that. Here They argue back. And the constant answer is, you obey first, and then you, while you're obeying, you can ask questions. Slow obedience is disobedience. You get moving, and you can ask your questions while you go, but you better get moving. Well, that's what Mary does. She immediately submits and says, I will obey to this. I will submit myself to your will. And she shows, and she shows not only her obedience, not only in what she says, but she follows it up with her actions. The, the angel essentially tells her to go see Elizabeth as a means of helping confirm that what he is say, telling to her is true. And so what does she do? What do we find she does? She gets up, and she goes to Elizabeth. The bottom line is this. For us who are disciples, the whole count of a mere, is about a Mary is that she is prepared to go on in faith without clear answers to her questions. And the reality is that for so many of us, she is, she is a great example because we have questions and God has not answered. Some of you have met the man of your dreams and he doesn't love Jesus. 
And God has called you to say, move on. And you don't understand why. That's a tough, that's a tough ask. And I don't know what God, what the answer is here. I don't know how he's going to provide in this. But I'm going to obey and I'm going to submit. Look at Mary. She's unbelievably remarkable in the Gospels. Her faith, her willingness to unquestionably obey God stands out amongst many. She has, we have wishy-washy characters for all the other disciples of Jesus. And she never seems to wave. Peter, he's called the rock. And yet he's, he's wishy-washy all over the place. He's always wavering back and forth. Contrary to Peter, she never wavers. Contrary to James and John, who are all about what they're going to get in the kingdom, she has no mindsets or thought about her greatness. Unlike Judas, she never leaves. Even when the disciples scatter, they are at the cross. Who is there watching Jesus die? Mary is still there. For every disciple, faith and obedience means accepting things from God, even when we don't understand. And she displays this from the word go to the very end, that she will follow what God has given her. And she will obey. It means the things that come into our lives that we do not predict, that we don't want. Can you think about this? She has an, un- she has an unplanned pregnancy. Some of you have experienced that. And the confusion, and the, how did I, how, what did I do, either to deserve this, it was, if it was forced upon you, or the question and confusion, if it was brought about from your own failings and, and mistakes, but it's still a place of confusion and misunderstanding. What do I do now? That's the place that Mary's at. Unplanned pregnancies are not the invention of the 20th century. They've been going on for much of history, all of history. And this woman faces hers with great faith and great obedience that she will submit to what God brings into her life. For the crucible of discipleship is when you look to the Lord in faith and obedience and you do what He asks you to do. And the connection that is to joy is for so many of us, the path to obey the Lord, even in the face when, our, when things are unclear, that is the path to joy. That so too often we want, we want a surface level joy. We want the things to be nice and clean and pretty, and that's the joy that we want. But for, if you think about this, even in normal life, almost all the things that give us the greatest amount of joy, we must wait for. And we're not sure if they're going to be provided for us. Think about this. If, you're, if you long to be married, joy comes not in rushing in a decision, but in making a wise decision about who you'll spend and commit the rest of your life with. You're, if you're waiting to give birth to a baby, you don't try to rush that baby out of your womb, but you give it time. There's great joy in giving that baby the entire nine months. There's health there. You long to have children who obey. Joy comes in the day in and the day out discipline and instruction of your children. You watched your friends graduate from college yesterday, and you're going, I'm not sure how many laps I'm going to make around here, but I long for the day when I can finally make a little bit of money and I can actually enjoy and begin to get into my career. The joy comes from staying the course, from being faithful and obedient, even if you don't know when this is actually going to be over and when this is going to be done. That's what God asks Mary to do. Joy often doesn't come immediately. We like to be, we're a quick fix people. But joy often comes as we wait, as we pursue faithfully the things that God has called us to do. So the broader context shows us that Mary pursues joy and the song flows out of her faithful obedience. It didn't come quickly. It didn't come shallow, in a shallow way. It came after waiting in faithful obedience. Now we look at the, at the more immediate context. 
and how that led her to joyous magnification of the Lord. God magnifying joy is seen in the immediate context because its joy comes out of experiencing truth in community. God magnifying joy comes from experiencing truth in community. The angel pretty much tells her, hey, go to see Elizabeth, and she obeys, and she goes to see Elizabeth, and when she encounters Elizabeth, what happens? The baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy, and then Elizabeth speaks truth, prophetic truth, and it gets amazing spiritual insight as she is filled with the Holy Spirit, and here's what she says. She says, why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord would come to me? And she identifies, you see what she's saying there? She's articulating to Mary what is going on. The angel has kind of already articulated it, but Mary needed to hear it from somebody else. She says, she identifies the baby that is in Mary's womb as the Lord. Remember the Lord in Hebrew context is, the, is Yahweh. Is the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And she says that the, the baby, that one who is in your womb is my Lord. But then she compounds it with something that seems almost confusing because she then says this, is the bait, she says, but then she follows it up with this, with this statement. Blessed are you, she's talking to Mary, blessed are you who believed what the Lord has spoken to her or to you. So here's the question. Is the baby in Mary's womb the Lord or is the Lord the one who has spoken to Mary? Now, okay, so one of the most confusing and difficult uh, doctrinal concepts of the Christian faith is something called the Trinity. It's the, it's the truth that there is one God... But there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a stumbling block. It is a difficult thing, but it, because it's a God who is beyond our comprehension. We can't, we can't comprehend of one and three and how they can be together at the same time. But that is the truth of the Scriptures as we have gleaned it, that there appears to be three persons in the Godhead. And what she is articulating here, Elizabeth, whether she understands it or not, she is saying not only is the Lord the one in your womb, but the Lord is the one who has spoken to you. This is mind-boggling stuff that she is giving to Mary. And yet even then, in the confusion of like what appears to be a Trinitarian treatise by Elizabeth, what happens to Mary? Suddenly she gets it. And I don't necessarily know why she gets it. But through the words of Elizabeth, suddenly the penny drops for Mary. Suddenly she gets excited about what's happening in her womb. Let me ask you this. When the angel comes to Mary and says to her, you're going to be pregnant, does Mary run out the doors and go, I'm going to have God's baby. I'm going to be God's baby mama. Is she excited about that? No, she's fearful, but she's submitting to it. But the joy doesn't happen until Elizabeth has spoken to her. What happens? She hears the truth in community, and suddenly the penny drops. So then this, she's been, it, Mary is this person throughout the Gospels. We see that she's pondering things. She's thinking about things, and she's been pondering what in the world it is that this angel has told me. And it took, it took Elizabeth to help the penny to drop. And it went from being merely kind of this thing that just kind of circled in her mind over and over and over again to something that suddenly led her into worship. And this is the case for so many Christians, and this is the case actually for all Christians. That if you're going to understand God rightly and most profoundly, that joy comes in community. It comes when you enter into a place in which, what may be a theological thing, that other people can explain the truth of God's word to you in, with clarity that you've never heard it before. 
or it may simply be that you were, you were confused about your life, but you came into worship on a particular Sunday, and you're coming on off a week where you're filled with guilt over your sins, you're crushed by the weight of your finances, and you're struggling, and suddenly you come in, and you hear all these people around you singing of the glory and the greatness of God and the peace that he brings, and suddenly all that stuff goes away. And the penny, the worship drops. It merely goes from merely an intellectual thing that I'm thinking about. The gospel is not simply up here, but suddenly it's something that you experience emotionally. And we get that best in community. See, Mary has had nothing but maybe semi-comprehending of what the angel has told her. But it's been through the help of Elizabeth that she suddenly gets it. That Yahweh is the one in my womb. That Yahweh is the one in my womb. And suddenly she bursts forth in song. My, my soul magnifies the Lord. We desperately need community. If you want joy in a Christmas season, as much as people, frankly, are an annoyance, that's how we think of them. And frankly, as challenging as it is, after all the various Christmas parties that you go through throughout the week, the best place for you to come to and were to have joy in a Christmas season that is overly packed in your schedule is to actually be in church with God's people hearing the praises of the gospel sung by the people around you. That's what we desperately need. We desperately need to have the truth in community. And in community, the things that we've experienced, you see, what's one of the challenges of Christmas is that we, all the painful things in our life become more poignant. I look at this a couple times this morning. But we begin, like, you, you come in weeping over various things in our community. You bring confusion and sorrow into God's church. And what we desperately need is for others to weep with us. See, the path to joy is not to keep your sorrows all to yourself, but the path to joy is to come into church and say, I am broken and I am needy and I am hurting. Will the community of God's people come around me? That is the pathway to joy. So if you're a person who is wondering if you've lost your job, the weeping, the weeping, coming into communion and saying, this is what's happened to me, may lead you, may be the first step to actually begin to say, it's going to be okay. That God is good to hear the truth from those who are around me. Perhaps you're somebody who your sorrow over what was, but has been taken from you sexually. It might mean you get into a group of people and a community of other people who have experienced that kind of loss, and they look at you and they say, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ, how it restores us and how it redeems us. And it is a weeping that leads to joy. God's community. Great joy, at least I've experienced it with, in watching my own wife. The, one of the great joys that she has in being pregnant is the conversation she has with other women who are pregnant. And the joy that we get to experience and the Christmas season, frankly, throughout the, throughout the Christian year is a joy found in community when you can begin to understand fully what we have in Christ Jesus. Martin Luther said this, At my home, in my house, there will be no vigor in me, but when I am in church, fire lights in me. There's a flame that is raised up. Sometimes you come in and your coals are burning low, and you need the breath of God's community to breathe heavy on you and bring them back to a blaze. Joy comes in hearing the truth in God's community. Finally, the song itself reveals how we develop God-magnifying joy. So see, if you want to have God-magnifying joy, you've got to be faithful to obey, even in the midst of the confusion and the questions. Second, 
you got to be faithful not only to obey, but you got to get yourself into community because it's there that we begin to experience the truth in a greater way. But the third thing I want you to see is that God-magnifying joy comes from seeing revolutionary salvation. And this is the theme of Mary's song. It's mercy and might which displays the grace of God. God's grace is revolutionary. And I do mean subversive. I mean it turns the world on its head. This song is revolutionary. If you actually read through this and pay attention, the the rich are crushed, the powerful are made low, and the humble are made great. It's It's a turning of the world upside down. That's revolving. A revolution is going on here. This song is about mercy, God's mercy and God's might. This is not a sentimental Christmas song. This is, all, this is a song about the great governments of the world being crushed. All the evil empires coming, being trodden by God. Imagine, imagine what, the, what the Magnificat would mean in a place like India where they have a caste system. Hey, everybody from various castes, we can all come sing the Magnificat together. You people on the higher caste, you're going to be made low. You're going to be crushed. Or what if you're a slave reading this in the South, the 17th and 18th century? Or what if you're a poor miner living in the slums and dying in their 30s? The Magnificat means something significant to you. You see, church church history understands this. In fact, the people of power historically have understood this. They know how to read Mary. We don't seem to get it. They they see the the revolutionary nature of Mary's song. For instance, William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, informed and commanded all the Anglican priests serving in India when India was one of the British colonies... And he said, you are not to read, preach on, or teach on the Magnificat because he was afraid it would incite revolution in India. And in a more recent time, in the 1980s, we see in uh, Guatemala, the Guatemalan government forbade, forbade the Magnificat from being read because they thought it was too subversive. It was too politically subversive. It sounds more like Che Guevara than anything we should be reading in the Bible. The great governments will be toppled down. The rich will come be thrown down. The rulers will be thrown, thrown down. This sounds like it should be sung at the barricades of the French Revolution. Not in church during Christmas. What is Mary saying? What is the content that she says? What's so revolutionary about what she says? She says she sings to the God who lifts up the humble and the impoverished. And who not only that, but who has come to lay out an all-out assault against the powerful and the rich. That's the subversiveness, the revolutionary power in this song. Now, Mary's song, to understand this, to understand it rightly, it is not primarily or very specifically about rich and being rich or poor. But it's about being proud and humble. The issue with the proud, the proud are called the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Not whether they're rich or poor in the, as the world has, by the world's standards. If they are rich, what it means is their riches have actually fooled themselves into thinking that they're okay with God's. Their riches have fooled themselves into thinking that they can have something to be prideful about in and of themselves. Revelation 3.17 talks about this. It says this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and therefore I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The proud are those who look at themselves and say, I've gotten this. I have this. They look down on others for what they don't have. They do not see what the, the central issue of their life is that, that, is that they miss that God's plan is to come to save those who are of low estates. 
to save the humble. The revolutionary nature of Mary's song is that salvation comes to those who know that they are in need of salvation. It comes to the humbles, to those who are weak. This may be a rich person, it may be a poor person. But those who are low estate are low estate in their hearts. They recognize that they have a spiritual need before the Lord. That's what she's singing about. That the lowly of this world, the small of this world, the broken of this world, are those who realize that they need salvation. Here's what the world says. And yes, even good old-time American folk religion, this is what it says. It says good things come to those who are good. But that's not what the gospel says. The gospel is not the good get in and the bad do not. The gospel is that the bad and the broken and the needy who run to Jesus as their Savior get in. And those who are bad and broken and needy who don't run to Jesus don't get in. Your sweet angelic grandmother, get this, needs Jesus as much as the prostitute on the streets. The question is, and the problem for us who are rich and powerful, the wealthy, those who are socially have, have power in this world, is that we have a more difficult time understanding how desperately we need Jesus. I was talking to a pastor friend in the last couple of weeks, and we were texting back and forth about some of the struggles in his church. And he was saying that his church, which is a very wealthy church, he was describing it, they a country club church. He said, the problem with my church is they don't think they need Jesus. He said, all the people in my church who realize that they need Jesus are the ones who've had affairs, who've children, who've gotten drug addicted, whose wives have left them. It's because of their wealth told them they didn't need Jesus. But when other parts of their life crumbled, suddenly they came to know the gospel. The gospel in the, in the story of Christmas, in the song of Mary, says that the gospel says comes to those who are a mess, those who are broken, those who are needy, and those who know it. To, the mess, to those who are messy this morning, God says, I am merciful. To those who cannot pull their life together by their own bootstraps, they don't have the power and the authority to do so, God says, I am mighty to save. That is the story of the Magnificat. See, what Mary realizes is the enormity, the reality that the Lord himself is inside of her. Her! You're saying she's a 15 or 16-year-old girl. She's from essentially a slum city in which she is the lowest of the low of the socioeconomic status, and yet the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh, has come to reside in her womb. And she's saying, this must be, this is a revolution, that the Lord himself would come to me. To me. And to those who, get, those who understand the gospel are those who, who say that, who have, that, who have the sense and the feeling that Mary had. How is it that the Lord would come into my life? How is it that the Lord would enter into my world? How is it that God would be merciful to me? I so desperately need him. God's grace, God's mercy, God's salvation comes by his grace and his grace alone. And this is the doorway of salvation and joy in our salvation. It is realizing that your salvation does not come because of your social standing, because of your money, because of how pretty and how well-kept your life is, because of all your church going. Your salvation and the joy that comes with it comes in realizing that your salvation came by nothing you did, but only by the fact that the Lord would deign to come and be with you. To be in your presence, to live inside of you. Do you come to understand this? Do you understand the beauty of this for the Christmas season? I said this earlier, but Christmas, it seems to draw out our scars. It's like it makes them rattle with the pain that we once had. 
But I want you to understand this about the radical nature of God's salvation, what he is communicating in the incarnation by coming into Mary's womb. Is this, is God not only comes to save, but he comes to be with us. To be with us, that's what Emmanuel means. If you've experienced a broken family, you feel it most at Christmas. If you remember the day that dad wrote a letter and you never saw him again, you feel it the most at Christmas. If you've lost a child, you feel it the most at Christmas. If you wish you could talk to your dad again or call your mom and say, I just want to talk to my mom on Christmas, and yet the Lord took her away years ago, you feel it most at Christmas. At Christmas, the scars rattle with our pain, but I want to tell you this, God remembers to show the mercy to those who need it. The story of the, of, of the incarnation is that God came down and was with a 15-year-old girl who desperately needed it. She says it herself. The God of my salvation, my Savior. Mary is not perfect. Mary is not, does not have grace that she can dispense to all the rest of us. She is one who needs salvation just like you and I do. And when Jesus comes down and actually lives in her and is with her in the same way we see by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is with us as well. Let me tell you the story. Ray Ortiz is a pastor in our denomination. tells a story about a man named Prodigal Sam who wrote these words. He was meeting with a counselor at Starbucks and he was sharing about how his dad who had been addicted to crack cocaine, left his family when he was 12. And the counselor sat there and listened and waited and said, Sam, Sam, if you're ever going to get healthy, then 33-year-old Sammy is going to have to go back to 12-year-old Sammy, look him in the eye and say to him, I know this is hard, but Daddy is not coming home. And as I listened and started to cry there right in the middle of Starbucks, I could almost hear Jesus saying, I will go with you, I will hold your hand, and I will weep with you there in that place of pain. See, sometimes we sing amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? But we also can sing because of the incarnation, because in Mary sang it, amazing love, how can it be that God, thou, my God, wouldst cry with me, would dwell with me in my worst places, would be near me. Mary says, God cares for the brokenhearted. God cares for the needy. God cares for the lowly. And the one who came to, it, to end all tears comes to cry with me. And to change my tears into joy. When you come to know that about the Christmas, about Christianity, that it's not about what you've done, and that God has not only come to save you, but He's come to be with you, to be near you in your worst sorrows, to give you the peace that we sang about this morning, then you'll get Christmas and you'll be, begin to actually sing with joy. And not just this Christmas, but every Christmas for all of eternity. How is your singing this Christmas? It was really good this morning, by the way. Was that a product of the fact that the band was really spot on, or was that a product of your own hearts? How is your soul? You feel a joy, a God-magnifying joy? Let me end with this story. There were two boys in Arkansas about 100 years ago. Their names were James and Harley. They were classmates. One boy, James, was really well off. His dad was wealthy. His dad owned the general store. They lived in the biggest house in town. Harley, though, Harley lived in the woods in a tiny shack. No running water, no electricity. In fact, Harley barely had shoes for most of the wintertime. James would show up to class with his hands in his pockets, stuffed with the newest trinkets and toys. His dad owned the general store. That's like your dad owning the Verizon store, the Apple store. So he would come with the newest and coolest things. And right around Christmas one day, the teacher saw that he brought in an orange you remember, you know, 100 years ago, an orange was like what you got for Christmas. 
I was actually saying this to my wife. She was asking what I wanted in my stocking. I was like, well, an orange and an apple would be good. She was like, what is this, 1832? Like, but he brought an orange, and he was super excited, and he opened this orange right there in front of Harley. And there is, he peeled, if you ever peel back a really good orange, and that vapor, that spray goes out throughout, then you can smell it. And Harley was sitting there staring at that orange and just drooling. Could not take his eyes off it. And James saw that Harley was staring at his orange, and so he said, would you like some? And, he, and, James, and Harley said, yes. And so James gave him the peel. And Harley, with great joy, though, looked at it, and he smelled that peel, and he began to chew on it with great delight. And all of its bitterness. But his teacher looked at this and wanted to weep. It was crushed. This child essentially was, that took delight in trash. But everybody else was throwing away. And so that week she went to the general store and she brought a few things for Harley's family. And she particularly brought Harley an orange. She went out to his ramshackle shack out in the woods and she gave Harley this orange. And he took it with, and he was so excited. He took it and he took the, and he broke open that peel. And just as he'd done before, he started eating the peel. And she, she grabbed his hand. She said, no, no, no. And she grabbed the orange and she pulled the orange apart and she took out one of those slices and she gave it to Harley. And she said what she remembers most is the face that he made when he bit into that orange. The face of a boy who was thinking, I didn't know that God could make something this delicious. Here's the point. When you understand the gospel, that you in your broken estate you understand that the gospel is like that orange. When you have tasted of that kind of delight, that kind of joy, the juices just run down you. And you will sing like Mary sang. And you will delight in all that God has done for you in Christ Jesus. And maybe you'll even say like she did, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let's pray. Oh, gracious God, I am really grateful. This church is a singing church, and it's a church, a church that's full of joy. But God, I pray that it would not be a show. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who would sing not simply when life is great, but Lord, when you bring the most confusing, complex things into our life. The gracious God, I pray that we would do the, the hard labor this season to move towards joy. That, Lord, we would not be happy with mere platitudes. We would not push ourselves away from the difficult things that you have called us to do, but, Lord, we would move towards them in obedience and trust that, Lord, the joy will come. Lord, I pray that we would not be a people who pushes ourselves away from community but drives ourselves towards community. That even the most difficult things, that, Lord, we would not be afraid to come and ask our questions in the midst of God's people to cry out and to weep, to share our fears, but then to hear the truth of God's word proclaimed to us from our other brothers and sisters. The gracious God, I pray more than anything else that, Lord, we would come to realize and see the unbelievable, the nature of the mercy that we have in our salvation. The Lord, it is all of grace. It is all of your mercy. It is all of your activity. And that that reality that us that you would, would come and be with us, of all people, unworthy. And that, Lord, through that, as we come to understand that, Lord, you give us great joy and great delight in Christmas.
We ask this in the name of your perfect Son who entered into this world for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.